Actually, when it came to a budget, I think they all threw caution to the wind, which is <laughs> what I was hoping for. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to speak to the uh, Mount Crawford Ruritan. I think the last Ruritan group that I spoke to was in rural Georgia. Uh, and I spoke to a number of different civic groups when we lived down there for a few years. Uh, and I always enjoy uh, getting together with uh, folks that I, I don't normally see uh, in my daily uh, life and telling you about what I do and what our company does. I live in Woodstock, uh, Virginia, and prior to that we lived in Rockbridge County. And uh, as it turns out, uh, the people that actually owned the house we live in lived in California and uh, they decided to sell and we had to move. And by the providence of God, we ended up in uh, Shenandoah County. And we just absolutely love living there. Um, when we moved back to, from Georgia, we said, you know, we can live wherever we want. Um, where have we always wanted to live? And it was plain as the nose on my face. Uh, and that, you know, that's the Shenandoah Valley. And um, so here we are. And uh, I can do my job from any place in the world. And this is where I want to be. Uh, right here in, in the valley. Uh, I am the chief historian for a company called Landmark Events. And what we do uh, is we take families primarily, but singles and grandparents and all kinds of people, but we're really kind of family-oriented uh, groups to places where history happened. We are a history tour company. And what makes us different, I guess, is that all of our teaching is done from a, a Christian biblical worldview perspective. And historian, professional historians historically have called that the providential school of interpretation. And that sounds good to me. Um, for many of the people that we talk about and look at in history believe very firmly in what is known by theologians as the doctrine of providence. And just a word about that. That is the idea that God not only created the world, but that he superintends it. And that everything happens according to his plan and purpose. Uh, and as historians, when we look at the past, we are actually studying the means that God used to fulfill his, his plans and his purposes uh, in history. And so that's kind of our approach uh, to the past, our approach to history in, in general. Uh, and if you want me to uh, be more specific, I can um, answer any questions. Um, you know, whenever I'm, I'm done and your meeting's over, I have some literature over there. But just to give you a sort of a general idea of what we do, we do uh, about a dozen tours a year uh, all over the United States, domestic tours, as it were, and also um, Scotland and Ireland. And I, I specialize in military history and church history, and Scotland and Ireland are just perfect for that, and that's one of my specialties is, is the Gaelic-speaking people. Um, but in this country, there are certain tours we do every year. We go to Washington, D.C., uh, and it used to be called the Patriotic Tour, and I kind of kiddingly call it the Heart of Darkness Tour now, but... <laughs> I'm not allowed to say that. I've, I won't get fired for saying it, but um, it is our most popular uh, tour because there's a great deal of um, Christian influence on the founding of the Republic, and you would just be stunned by the amount of Scripture <laughs> that is carved into buildings 
Uh, now, these days when they discover it, they send the guys up there with the hammers and chisels and they flatten it out and, and hammer it out of the past so that people won't, uh, won't tumble to what's uh, going on as quickly. All you have to do, though, is go in the, one of the Smithsonian's if you want to know what's going on in terms of historical interpretation. Um, we, we reject the theory of evolution, every theory of evolution, uh, and hold to the fact that you know, we believe the scriptures are objective truth uh, and that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So that, that's our starting point. And so we do believe in objective truth, unlike most historians, ironically, who no longer uh, even believe that, uh, much less what actually happened uh, in the past and what's good and right and what's bad and evil, etc. Um, to give you an idea of some of the tours that we, we just finished up two weeks, um, one in uh, Mobile, Alabama, where we stayed aboard the USS Alabama uh, in the birthing deck. I didn't say we slept there, but we stayed there because we, we had about 30 little boys with us. Um, and we had the run of the ship while we're there. So it, it's, it's really a great experience, and we do that almost every year. But that was a Civil War tour. In reality, we went to Fort Blakely and Fort Morgan. Um, and not only do we do battlefields, but of course uh, museums. Uh, so there we went to Fort Condé, which is downtown Mobile, the original fort that was built there by the French, uh, and there's a museum there as well. Um, USS Alabama is a floating museum, and so I teach about the Second World War and the role and the importance of battleships in the Second World War and how they became outmoded and outdated before, long before the war was over uh, by aircraft carriers and submarines. Uh, and we, we talk about those things, and I tell s stories uh, that relate to those various events. They have a big hangar there in Mobile, and in it they have a B-25 bomber, uh, and it's, it hasn't been repainted yet, but it's going to be painted in the colors of one of Jimmy Doolittle's raiders that bombed Japan right after Pearl Harbor, and I tell the story of one of the men on one of those B-25s, and it's a magnificent um, story of the providence of God and um, what's going on behind the curtain, uh, so to speak, in some of the actions of the Second World War. And then we went to St. Augustine, which is the oldest city in North America, has the oldest fort, uh, fortress, uh, masonry fortress in North America, or at least on the American continent. There's a fort in in um, Puerto Rico that's older, but in continental United States, Fort San Marcos is the largest, and uh, there we talk about pirates and forts and Andrew Jackson and the Seminoles, um, and I, I don't know if you're aware or not, but the Seminoles were kind of invented during the 1820s and 30s and 40s. There, were no, there was no such thing as Seminole tribe in Florida. All the native tribes have been wiped out by the Spanish. There wasn't anybody left. So in some ways, Florida was the empty quarter, uh, and it was fought over by Spain and France and England, and eventually fell into the hands of the United States. But during that period, as Americans moved westward and got involved in the Creek Civil War in Alabama and sided with one side of the Creek um, tribes against the other side, wiped out the Red Stick Creeks and 
the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which is on one of our Georgia tours, and we go into Alabama to Horseshoe Bend. Uh, the survivors of that, the, uh, the lower creeks that survived Horseshoe Bend, they went to Florida and lived in the swamps, and there they met runaway slaves, quite a few of them, from, from, primarily from Georgia. And they also ran into the occasional individual from other tribes that had been wiped out in Florida, and in little pockets, uh, a handful of people still survived. And they all combined the creeks and the Cherokees, some Cherokee came down there, and they all combined and created a new, created a new entity, which they called Seminole. Um, so the, the Seminoles are a, um, a conglomerate of other peoples that all came together in Florida um, before Walt Disney discovered it. And so uh, the Seminoles are real part of the history of Florida. Uh, and we end up that tour at a Civil War reenactment, which I think is the best one in the country. It's the Battle of Alusti. Now, everybody's heard of that, right? Uh, the largest Civil War battle fought in Florida. Uh, and it was the third bloodiest Civil War battle for the number of participants. The more casualties, is third after Antietam and uh, Gettysburg. It's the third bloodiest engagement in American, in American Civil War, um, per the number of soldiers that w were involved in it. It was about 10,000 men. Um, and they have a magnificent Civil War reenactment there right on the original battlefield. Who knew, right? <laughs> uh, but that ends our Florida tour every year. We end up at, on a Saturday afternoon at the Olusty reenactment. Um, so so we, we go to lots of, different, lots of different places. Our Scotland tour, 10 different castles. Everybody likes castles. Uh, some, of them, some of the castles have been slighted, that is, have been torn down or burned uh, historically. But there's just quite a, a variety of those kinds of things there. I do lectures on how to, to visit a museum. And I especially give that when we go to Washington, D.C. Because the museums reflect the view of history that the federal government has. And it's very different from what you were taught in school, parents. Um, and it's not different from what the public school teaches today. Um, and it, it's a product of that kind of education over the last 20 or 30 years. So when you go to the Smithsonian, it's, it's going to reflect a absolutely pagan worldview. Uh, and they have excised every reference to Christianity and to objective truth from all the Smithsonian. So, um, so, I, so I do a, a talk, and they're still wonderful museums. I mean, you still want to go to the Natural History Museum, even though it screams evolution from the time you walk into the door to the time you leave. But there's a way to go through there as a Christian without unscrewing your head and sticking it in the back seat of the car. You, you take it with you and, you, and you evaluate these things from a biblical worldview perspective. So that's, that's kind of what we bring to museum tours. And I have a battlefield lecture uh, called uh, Battlefields Bring the Dead to Life. And you, kn you know that if you live in the Shenandoah Valley and you've visited Newmarket or Port Republic or um, Cross Keys or any of the great battlefields, uh, Winchester, Cedar Creek, any of the great battlefields of the of the valley and of the state of Virginia. Um, they're all, by the way, 
uh, not the ones I necessarily mentioned, but battlefield, national battlefields interpreted by the National Park Service are all being rewritten. The battle, what they are to teach at those battlefields um, is all being rewritten. And we got sued for illegal guiding uh, at the Chalmette Battlefield in New Orleans, Louisiana. And we do a tour down there. Great World War II Museum, D-Day Museum uh, in New Orleans. Also Confederate Museum about a block away that's the best in the country. Uh, and also the Chalmette Battlefield is down there where Andrew Jackson defeated the British in the Battle of New Orleans, 1814. Um, if you know the old Bobby Horton, or the old Johnny Horton song. Um, and the uh, after one of our tours, we've been going there for years and years, after one of our tours, we got a big package in the mail that we were being sued by the National Park Service um, for illegal guiding. And one of, their, one of their rangers had followed us around to hear what we said about the battle. And I just I talk about the weapons that they were using and the tactics, and we go on the battlefield, and uh, I don't know what else you could say except that I said... Uh, and providentially speaking, this action by Andrew Jackson eventually resulted in his becoming president of the United States because it made him famous and it made him popular in the rest of the country. And I said, so in the providence of God, a battle ended up vaulting this particular individual uh, into that status. So then we get sued. That's illegal guiding. Well, there is no such thing. So we discovered through this long discovery process um, for the battlefields that every national park is run as the fiefdom of the superintendent. He gets to make all the rules. National Park Service only has a few rules. You can't open a business there. You can't metal detect. You can't slaughter the animals. Uh, there's you know, basic things that nobody's going to do. Um, hmm? What's that? Oh, well, that's not... <laughs> That's not one of the Park Service rules, but apparently it is for the superintendent at Chalmette. Uh, and so they, uh, they fined us $300, and we showed up at court and pleaded uh, innocent on the First Amendment. And so then they scheduled a trial, and we're just a couple of guys having a great time. We don't have a lot of money to spend on litigation. Um, so we called a friend of ours in Alabama, an attorney, and we explained the situation. And he said, well, I have a friend who's a federal judge in Louisiana. Let me call him up. So he called him, and he said, oh, they want to they wanna go to such and such. Uh, um, I won't tell you the, the name of the um, law firm, but they want to check out this particular law firm. And so we called him up, told him what we were doing. They said, send all the materials, and we'll decide if we'll take your case or not. And uh, they read all the charges by the National Park Service, and they laughed long and hard. And they gathered everybody around and said, look at this, you won't believe it. And uh, they said, not only will we take your case, we'll do it for free. And, um, and this is front page Washington Post kind of stuff. Um, and they had, the Park Service had just decided to make an example of groups like us that come to the battlefield and have a different way of looking at it than they do. They want their narrative to be the one that's, that carries through as the big yellow buses pull in and disgorge um, you know, their thousands of little secular humanists to learn just what they want them to learn. 
So it went for a whole year. They refused to drop the case. But when they found out our, the law firm that was defending us, they said, where'd you get that money? Who's paying you? You know, nobody. They just said they would take us on because this is an open and shut case. And uh, the, the day before the trial, National Park Service dropped the case. There's more, t there, there's more fun stuff associated with it, but I, I won't uh, bore you with the rest of the details. It's hilarious, though, some of the things that happened. Well, it just so happened that they dropped the case the day before our next tour there. <laughs> so it, was, it took a whole year, came around the whole year. We showed up, superintendent did not, uh, on the battlefield. And they welcomed us with open arms. They couldn't have been nicer, which is most of our experience with the National Park Service. They love what we do. Um, and <laughs> in the end, the... Uh, we went and did our, our normal thing, and a riverboat pulled up to the levee. Battlefield's protected by a big levee on the Mississippi, and Padawheel Steamer pulls up, all the tourists pour off, and the little girl from the National Park Service runs out to tell them the story of the Battle of New Orleans. And so our president, Kevin Turley, he sees what's going on. He wants to find out what they actually say. How is that different from what we do? So he's went, he just went and joined the group. And they didn't know him from Adam, and he, he just, well, not this Adam. And, it, and, he, and he, he got to hear what the National Park Service, how they interpret the Battle of New Orleans. And the little girl said, got all these people, tourists off the boat. They don't know their head from a hole in the ground, what, where they are or anything. So whatever she tells them, that's new. And she says, she begins by saying, we at the National Park Service apologize to you. 30 years ago, the National Park Service, when they made this battlefield, they took down some cabins that we later found out were slave cabins. And that was the most important thing about this battle, was preserving the slave cabins. And, and she went on and on. And then she said, the Smiths, now the significance of this battle was, it's the first time women joined in the defense of the country with rifles in the battle line. Now, that's not the significance of the battle, folks. Uh, and it's also not true. She never said a single thing that was actually true. It was a, it was a radical feminist rant, but it's, it's what she's memorized to tell the people that come to talk about. They want to see what happened on the battlefield of New Orleans. Well, that's just, just an example of the direction the National Park Service is headed, and I could give you a hundred other examples. Well, we're the antidote to that. And, um, you know, our, I guess our tagline is, if you want a vacation with purpose, you know, if you want, if you want a meaningful vacation and see wonderful historical sites of our own nation, to see what God has accomplished down through the centuries, both good and bad. You know, we're not mindlessly patriotic or we don't ignore hard subjects. We're happy to talk about slavery and um, why the 19th Amendment should be abolished and things like that. Um, the uh, um, history of our country is a history of sinful people. Um, often doing stupid and sinful things. And it's always been that way. 
And that, a lot of that gets covered up. We talk about everything because we want to see it. We want to see it from a biblical perspective that has an understanding of who man is uh, and, and what's good and, and, and right. Uh, this attempt to eliminate, for instance, Robert E. Lee from history. Uh, what, nothing could be more insane than that. Because when you, you see historical figures, nobody's perfect. But some are more perfect than others and have set an example that is worth following. Um, for me, this, this began when I was very, very young. Um, and the year that my father built the, the house that I grew up in, we lived with my paternal grandparents. And my grandfather had a drawer jammed full of pictures. And it turns out that our family had a photographer from the 1840s on. So from the beginning of photography, we have family photographs. And I used to just badger him to take out that drawer, and at least every couple weeks he would take it out, and I would pull out pictures. Who's this? Why is he, why is he carrying that rifle over his shoulder? Um, how do you gut a deer? There's a big deer hanging up. Um, all the things that were reflected in these photographs, I wanted to know about because it was my kin, it was my people, and I mean, I was little. I was only, you know, seven years old. I really didn't have a, a clear concept of the past. You really don't get that until most children, until they're about eight years old. Uh, but he told me stories. He told me stories about our family and about these individuals. And that's great Uncle Zenas. We don't talk about him. You know, this is, why? Why don't we talk about great Uncle Zenas? Um, well, as soon as he gets out of prison, we'll let you know. Um, <laughs> So they, they, told me, they told me stories, about, and I got a real sense of who I was and where I came from. And then in the third grade, one of my classmates came to school with, for show and tell, and he had visited his grandmother during Christmas, and she lived at Gettysburg. And this is during the centennial, the 100-year anniversary of, of Gettysburg, and, or the Civil War. And he had a bunch of postcards with soldiers on them. And they were, um, they weren't dressed accurately, uh, but it was, it was the centennial. And they were portraying northern and southern soldiers at Gettysburg during that anniversary. And I took one look at that, and I went crazy. And I never looked back. <laughs> and I ended up reading every book written on the Civil War that ever was uh, that I could get my hands on. And it wasn't long before they let me into the high school and I was sixth grade, they let me into the high school library because I read everything that was in the junior high library and the elementary library, et cetera. Uh, and I fell in love with history and just the, the past. And, and then I had a, all of my teachers were World War II veterans, all of them, all the male teachers, and most of them were male. And my dad, my, all my uncles, all World War II veterans. And I didn't take it for granted. I wanted to know and what a vast thing that is, vast subject. Um, and I, I, I had a sixth grade teacher that was a veteran. He brought in blood-stained helmets and things. And I said, when I grow up, I'm going to be you. I decided uh, in the sixth grade that I was going to be a historian. And nothing was going to stop me. And nothing did. 
and I've been teaching for more than 50 years. I've been teaching American history. Um, and now, I, over the last 15 years, I get to teach it where it happened. And there's nothing more exciting than that. Uh, and to see families get it, you know, and to see children get really fired up about, about history and about the past. I, we, always do a, we always do a Virginia tour. I've got three or four different Virginia tours that we do. Uh, and one coming up this in April, and it'll be the Valley Tour in April. But last year we did a, we called it, uh, title of the tour was um, Confronting Tyranny Tour. And we did all the Virginia presidents, went to their homes. And I don't know how much you know about, just pick one, James, James Monroe. I think, personally think he's the least known of the Virginia presidents. And when it comes to looking at history from a providential perspective, uh, and I told, uh, I told this story yesterday morning in an interview with a Colorado uh, radio station um, who interviewed me for an hour for a curriculum that they're putting together, and it's, it's, it's going to have... Uh, an hour on Providence and the Revolutionary War. That was my, my topic. And so for an hour, I got to tell, tell stories about the War for American Independence and Dr. Providence and all about George Washington, who was a firm, firm believer uh, in, in Providence and, and a Christian man uh, of great depth. Uh, unlike what the professors at William & Mary will tell you, you know, uh, just the opposite, but uh, they're wrong. And... I, so I talked about providential things and, uh, and one of my favorite stories. I said, tell us one of your favorite stories of Providence and the Revolutionary War. And I'll, I don't know if this will be the last thing I say, may or may not be, but uh, at least I'll tell you this, this one story. And uh, you, you may already be familiar with it, but James Monroe was an 18-year-old student at William & Mary uh, when the War for Independence broke out, or when the independence movement was getting underway in Germany, or in Germany, in, uh, in Williamsburg. And uh, James Monroe was a patriot, and he wanted to do his, he wanted to do what he could do, uh, because he knew Virginia was going to be invaded. And so he, the entire student body of William & Mary went home and enlisted in the units around their homes. And James Monroe was no different. But because he had a year of college under his belt, they made him an officer. So he's a, he's a lowly lieutenant in a Virginia regiment. And he's already been through the New York campaign and um, through uh, New Jersey. And now they're, Washington and his army are in Pennsylvania. And at the lowest ebb, it's the first year of the war, it's 1776. It's, you know, it's the, just the lowest ebb that his army was going to reach for until they get to Valley Forge, and then they go a little deeper. And a couple of years later, a little deeper than that. But this, this was a crucial moment in the War for Independence. And a victory was absolutely necessary just to keep going. And you know the story. Washington decided to cross the Delaware River in the dead of night through the ice flows and the fr freezing rain and attack Trenton. And Trenton was garrisoned by a group of German soldiers, some Hessians, very distinguished uh, veteran unit. 
But Washington's going to descend on them with his whole army, which has shrunk down to just a couple thousand men. So as they're marching across the Pennsylvania countryside to get to the boats uh, to cross over to New Jersey, Delaware River separates those two states. A bunch of dogs come screaming out of a farmhouse, and they're barking their brains out. The, the whole army's kind of trying to slip by quietly through the countryside. And the man who lives in the house comes running out, and he cusses out the soldiers, and he runs up to them and screams for them, screams at them for rousing his dogs and stuff. And he finds out, well, these are Americans. He thought it was British soldiers. And he, he was accustomed to the high heavens. And his name was Dr. John Riker. And it just so happened that marching by uh, was James Monroe, this 18-year-old college student from William & Mary, lieutenant with his company. And he goes up to Dr. Riker and says, now we're American soldiers. We're on our way down to the boats. Uh, we're going to cross the river, and we're going to attack the, uh, the British soldiers at Trenton. And Dr. Riker said, well, why didn't you say so first? He said, I'm going to go with you. you who knows when you, you'll, you'll probably need my services somewhere along the line. So he runs in and gets his bag, puts on his coat and his hat, and he just throws in with the company commanded by James Monroe. Dr. Riker crosses the river, crosses the Delaware on the boats with everybody, and they march through the countryside, and they descend in two columns on Trenton. And the Germans wake up, and they run out, and they load their cannon, and they begin firing, and they form their battle lines, and the Battle of Trenton is on. Uh, first thing in the morning on December 25th. Um, and in the first volley, the commander of Monroe's regiment gets struck down. And so the men in his regiment just start milling around. They don't know what to do. Their commander has fallen, and it's, it still isn't full light, and there's confusion and firing everywhere. And James Monroe, uh, 18 years old, takes charge, takes control, leads the charge through the town. Hessians fire a second volley, and this time Monroe gets shot uh, and severs an artery, and he goes down in the snow with his blood spurting out like this. And who is standing next to him when he gets hit? But Dr. John Riker, who picks him up, carries him into the house, puts a tourniquet on, does a, puts field bandages on him, does a field operation, saves his life. Well, that 18-year-old college student is going to become the fifth president of the United States. And if Dr. Riker had not been there, he would have bled to death right there. They had no surgeons with their regiment or anywhere nearby. There wasn't anybody that would have known what to do, and he would have just bled to death on the streets of Trenton, and we never would be talking about him. Um, well, we say God providentially preserved the life of James Monroe, and here's how he did it. And uh, Dr. Riker was awakened by his dogs. <laughs> And had the presence of mind to, to, to believe that he might be of some use. And he was for this young lieutenant uh, who many years later is going to be elected to the presidency of the United States. Uh, and be a, a, a good president too. So um, that's, that's the sort of stories that, that lie in the fabric of American history wherever you go. No matter where you go. 
doesn't matter what historical area it is. I, last, uh, well, a few months ago, I guess last August, I was at a wedding in Duluth, Minnesota. Has anybody ever been to Duluth, Minnesota? Well, Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> so I went to a wedding in Duluth, and I had a couple extra days there. And I thought, there's got to be something of historical interest somewhere around these parts. This is the coldest part of the known universe in the winter, but it was, but it was August. And some had to happen here sometime in the past. I'm interested in the history of any place. And lo and behold, that area is full of interesting history. I mean, enough for a tour. So when I came back, I put together a proposal. Duluth, Minnesota. Um, the, the ace of aces in World War II for the United States was a guy named Richard Bong, B-O-N-G, and he was from near Superior, Wisconsin, which is just across the river. It's five minutes away from Duluth, but it's in Wisconsin. And there's a museum there dedicated to Richard Bong. He shot down 40 Japanese planes in World War II. He was the ace of aces, that's what he's called. And he has a whole wall at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. He has a whole wall in Georgia at um, Warner Robins Air Force Base. Uh, because he was, he was the greatest. Uh, and there's a fellow who just died about a month ago in Lexington. He was a member of our church when we lived in Rockbridge County. Um, and he, he sat in the same seat every single Sunday he was there. Uh, every, every, every Sunday. And he was Richard Bong's wingman in World War II. And the Ace of Aces couldn't have done what he did without the guys who protected his flanks. And Carl Plank was the first one. In fact, he flew over there with Richard Bong. Carl just died a month ago, and he was 103 or 104 years old. And I used to take him out for lunch once a month when, I, when we lived there, when I could, and just tell me anything. <laughs> tell me your story, you know. And I have his whole life story. And uh, tell me about Dick Bong. What was he like? And, and Carl, got, Carl got shot down, and he's the, only P, uh, he's the only P-38 pilot to go down in the Pacific and survive. And he swam ashore on a Japanese island, was protected by natives until they got him back to Australia. I mean, his story is magnificent. Well, here's the Richard Bong Museum, five minutes away from where I'm staying in Duluth. Drive over. I go in there looking for Carl, guy I know, um, who was still living at that time. And sure enough, they've got Carl there and a picture of him. And I said, do you know that Carl Plank is still living? And they couldn't believe it. He's the last P-38 pilot that's still living from the war in the Pacific. And now, he, now he's not. And like I said, he died about a month ago at 103 or 104, whatever. But this little short, bald guy from Charleston, South Carolina, has a story that would just <laughs> curl your hair. Uh, he didn't have any hair. He blamed Clemson for that. He, he, he went to Clemson, and they used to be a military school, and everybody that came out of there was a second lieutenant uh, or a farmer. Those are kind of your two choices. And 
<laughs> he commissioned. He commissioned the day World War II started, and so he was the first one over to Australia in the P-38s. But he said when he went to Clemson, they cut all his hair off and never grew back. And so everybody called him the old man. He's 21 years old. He's bald. He blames Clemson. I, you can't make these things up. And that's what we do. We, we go to places where these things happen. We meet people that were part of history when we, whenever we can. When we go to New Orleans to the World War II Museum, we invite World War II veterans to come, and we throw them a big banquet at the end of the week. Now, there aren't any left of the guys that we have been taking there over the years. Um, they've, uh, they've all died, except one in Florida, but he can't make the trip now. Um, but we're just uh, we're surrounded. Uh, as Faulkner famously said, in the South, the past isn't even the past. When you start talking about the Wausau, you know, it's, it's immediate. We lived in Charles City County, Virginia, for 20 years. And Charles City is between Williamsburg and Richmond. And it's a rural county. It's 80% black um, and Indian. And it's, uh, rural. it's rural. It's all farms. Everybody owns their own land. And there's lots of interesting stories about living there. People are afraid of Charles City because it's such a high black population. But they don't need to because it almost has zero crime, too, to go with it. It was a wonderful place to live. And our next-door neighbor was, his, uh, his name was Harrison Tyler. And his grandfather, John Tyler, was president of the United States in 1843. Not as great-grandfather, his grandfather, was president of the United States in 1843. Now, Harrison is still living, and he has Alzheimer's pretty bad. Um, and he's, in his, he's about 90. But his father, Lyon Gardner Tyler, was the president of William and Mary. And he was born, uh, his, fa- his father was born in 1859. And so his father's father was president of the United States, John Tyler. He had 17 children. And this was number 16, was Lyon Gardner. And he didn't marry until the 1920s. So he was an an older man when he got married, but he married a woman in her 30s. And John Tyler had married... Uh, his first wife had died in the White House, and he remarried, and he remarried a woman that was 20 years old. And he was 60-something. Uh, and they had, they had eight children. So he had seven from the first wife, eight from the next, something like that. Um, well, anyway, our next-door neighbor was born in the 1920s, like 1928, something like that, Harrison Tyler. He had two first cousins fall at the Battle of Gettysburg. I mean, first cousins. Think of your first cousins, and they're the same age as you. <laughs> he had first cousins that were at Gettysburg as soldier, Confederate soldiers. They're defending Charles City County, Virginia. Um, so the past isn't even past uh, in some places. But that's rapidly dwindling due to the hostility to the South and the hatred of the South. And the, and the southern, southern history and the southern past. And we are here to preserve it. 
uh, and to remember those things that are worth remembering, and it's mostly things worth remembering. Um, and so that's what we do. Um, our landmark events, we've got um, a number of, we still have 10 tours ahead of us this year, including Scotland and Ireland. Um, our American History Tour in uh, Washington, D.C. is in, we've got, some, we've got some tear sheets over there that give you the details of how, where we go and how we do it. It's like when we go to Washington, D.C., we also go to uh, Mount Vernon. We go to Antietam Battlefield, where I was, um, I worked there as a docent a few times a long time ago. Um, this is October 3rd through 6th, for instance. And there are two other historians that, that come along with me, uh, Bernie Bell, Bernie Beal, uh, whose ancestors, whose ancestors sold the land that the Capitol was built on. There's a little plaque there, Mr. Beal, back in the 1700s. Um, that's his direct ancestor. Did he get it back somehow and kind of kick out? The- he doesn't want it back. And <laughs> he's, actually, he's actually an evangelist uh, and a historian of, of great powers. And uh, he's with us for one day, and he's fantastic. And then uh, Colonel John Eidsmo, who's argued before the Supreme Court numerous times. And so he takes us into the Supreme Court and some of the other uh, places. He's with us all week. He's fantastic also. So we do a lot of different things. We go to all the war memorials, certainly. And, and we scare people with our view of Abraham Lincoln, but we won't get into that today. So uh, I'm, I'm going to stop now. I've, I've bent your ear long enough. Uh, we have a website, events. Uh, .org, and it has all the information about us. I have a, um, a weekly history blog that I write, um, it's about a thousand words. If you're interested in receiving that, it doesn't cost anything, or in receiving our, our mailings, email mailings, um, a couple times a month. We tell people what we're doing and uh, pass along interesting, interesting stuff. Um, so I've got a. I'll just leave this up here with a pen on it. And uh, if you're interested in being on our email list, I'd be happy to add you in um, for the future. If you want to keep up with what we're doing, I've got one here. Um, and you just put your uh, your name, your name, your email address, uh, and your zip code. Uh, way we can tell how many people from certain regions that are interested. And uh, if you have any questions, um, I'll be here as long as anybody else is here. Uh, if you want to talk about anything, any questions at this point? You say you taught yes. Well, I've taught at every level. I taught um, I taught in a public high school many many years ago, uh, right out of college. And then I taught in a Christian high school uh, two different times uh, and two different schools, unrelated. And I taught at uh, the University of Dayton. I taught military history at uh, UD in Ohio. Uh, and I taught at William & Mary, uh, where I did my PhD work. Uh, and I've been a guest lecturer at a lot of different colleges and law schools and things like that over the years. 
And about the last 15 years, I've done the history tours. Um, a lot of battlefields, a lot of churches, a lot of museums, um, historic homes, uh, cemeteries. Oh, we love cemeteries. They, there are so many stories there. Uh, we're in Mobile. <laughs> uh, in Mobile and, well, more so than St. Augustine. In Mobile, there are just all kinds of interesting people buried in Mobile. General Braxton Bragg, which just had a rank equal to Robert E. Lee. Um, and was just as important in the Army of Tennessee, but ten times less competent. Uh, and, and other interesting people, Confederate nurse who left one of the best memoirs of the wars buried there in Mobile, Kate Cumming, who was from Scotland. And uh, she traveled with the Army of Tennessee, taking care of wounded boys. Um, all kinds of interesting people buried there. So uh, we do cemeteries, too. <laughs> we make that a point. Um, there's so many stories there. I just wanted to ask you, what did you find, other than this um, pilot wingman, what else did you find at Duluth, Minnesota that you might have enjoyed? Oh, they have, um, they have an old iron ore ship that has been converted to a museum about all the shipping on Lake Superior. And, uh, of course, the most famous one, does anybody know? The Edmund Fitzgerald. Gordon Lightfoot's song about the Edmund Fitzgerald sailed out of, the, sailed out of Duluth or nearby Duluth and uh, went down in a storm. It's a, it's a tremendous story. Um, but it, that's kind of representative of that whole industry. And that part of the country and the, and the ores that were manufactured, or the ores that were dug out of the ground and then sent to the manufacturers of the United States powered the United States through World War II. Uh, and ever since, it's still a it's still a big big industry there. There is a railroad museum, second to none in Duluth. They've got about ten big old engines, and uh, it, it's if you like railroads. And we'll, we will, t and then they have a tour that goes up the shoreline of Lake Superior, where they tell the story of the railroads and the growth of the area on the on the railroad train. And you eat pizza and. Um, you go for like a two-hour train ride, which is related to everything in the area historically. And then there's a lumber camp that's been turned into a historic site. It's a famous lumber camp. You go there, they've got, they've got lumber guys that, <laughs> that uh, show you how the, how the North Woods were tackled uh, and how the, how the people lived. And there's a zoo there as well uh, for, for younger children. And... Uh, and we have a family that lives in Duluth that's been on 25 of our tours. That's how they decided to teach history to their children. Um, we draw a lot of homeschool families, a lot, because they can go any time of the year. And uh, so we go year-round. And um, it's, uh, that's a, a big hands-on hands -on thing. Uh, oh, so anyway, there's a family that lives in Duluth, and they're going to have a big picnic at their home. They live out in the country. Uh, you don't have to go very far out of Duluth to live out in the country. And, and they, they do, and they have a, an estate. Uh, and they're going to have our whole group there for a big picnic at their, at their home. And we always uh, do Highland Games in places like that. Um, this the kind of Highland Games that you see in Scotland, we do them. Wherever there's Scotch-Irish as a theme, we, we do it. 
uh, East Tennessee in another month. We'll be down in East Tennessee. We do a Highland Games on our, our history tour. And then I speak at a homeschool convention that's held down there uh, in Pigeon Forge. And so we always attach a two-day history tour to homeschool conventions where I'm the, one of the speakers. And so, but we do a Highland Games on that one. And we always have flag races. And we're not embarrassed by the Confederate flag, by the way. So we don't care what names people call us. And uh, we have a good time. Yes, ma'am. I think you mentioned in the beginning that in Washington, D.C., they're chiseling out some of the references to God. Can you expand on what you have seen? Well, if you, uh, if you go to the Supreme Court, uh, they haven't chiseled this out, but in the Supreme Court building, they have around the top of the Supreme Court, and inside too, they've got some bas-relief and, and sculpting and, and such, the great lawgivers. And, of course, preeminent among them and over them all is Moses in the giving of the law of God uh, in the scriptures. And then there are also Bible verses that are carved in buildings all over the place. And that's, uh, that's kind of Bernie lives there, and that's his... That's his thing. He knows where they all are. Um, and so he, and in con Congress, you know, in the Capitol building, which we're not allowed to go into yet. Um, you know, these people had a revolution and forgot to bring guns. Well, how about that? Uh, January 6th. But they've closed it. They've closed the Capitol. And so we can't, we can't get in there. But um, there are all kinds of references in there. And each state... Uh, each state gets two monuments inside the Capitol. And it's really up to the state as to who that's going to be. And we were in there uh, one time a couple years ago. And the, we were in the crypt uh, where Robert E. Lee used to be. But um, our last administration here um, got rid of our statues in Statuary Hall. Uh, because they were men 50 times greater than anybody else that's ever served here. And they couldn't stand it. But the uh, docent said, "Who is anybody here from North Carolina? And we always, people come from all over the United States on our tours. And so we had some North Carolinians. And they said, and that's um, governor of North Carolina over there. And they're getting rid of him. He was a slaveholder. He's going to be gone. He's a racist. North Carolina is getting rid of that, that particular governor. It was a very famous and productive governor in North Carolina. And he said, and we just can't wait for it to go. And since somebody said, well, what are they replacing him with? And the guy's countenance fell, and he said, Billy Graham. <laughs> Too bad. Anyway... Anyway, uh, they'd, already, they'd already cast the Billy Graham statue, but he was still alive. You can't put him in there when they're living. So Billy Graham knew that as soon as he died, he'd be in the, he'd be in the Congress uh, <laughs> looking over those miscreants. But um, there, there are lots and lots of places all over. Uh, and Bernie can tell you the places that they've... Um, you know, that they've, they've plastered over scripture verses. and Well, they just plastered over all of Stonewall Jackson's sayings at VMI. 
you know, in Jackson Hall, formerly Jackson Hall, you know, they they don't they don't think that uh, phrases like um, you you can you can be whatever you resolve to be. Well, that was said by somebody who had a couple servants, so you got to get rid of it. I mean, he's represented it. He is VMI, you know. So they're suicidal. But, and there are reasons for that. There are lots of reasons for that, but that they do that. We won't get into that. That's a different lecture. Um, 1619 Project, anybody familiar with that? What's going on with that? So, so now when we go to Jamestown, there's you know, a whole new curriculum going in there, I suppose. I haven't been to Jamestown in a while. But none of the 1619 Project is true either, uh, from the very beginning, the very beginning. The first, the first um, Africans that came to America had been kidnapped by um, African tribes and sold to the Portuguese. And then the Portuguese had been ambushed by the Spanish and had taken, had taken the uh, Africans off of their ship, put it on their ship. And then the, and then the Spanish ship was ambushed by an by a British ship illegally, and they took, they thought it was a gold ship, and it turned out to be a bunch, bunch of Ndongo tribesmen from Angola, uh, who were Christians, by the way, already, and they were brought into Jamestown. They didn't know what to do with them. Because, uh, there weren't any African slaves uh, in the English colonies yet, and uh, the governor, the royal governor said, I'll take them off your hands. And he indentured them out to plantations along the James River. And the Ndongo Africans who first arrived at Jamestown, uh, all but one of them became freemen. And they intermarried with the English and the Indians uh, and each other. And their descendants include two Confederate generals, um, a whole bunch of cowboys in Texas uh, from the previous centuries. Um, a number of words from their language uh, went into the whole cattle industry in, uh, in Texas um, from the descendants of the, these uh, Ndongos. Uh, you've heard the expression little dogie. Uh, dogie is a, a calf in the Ndongo language. And that some of them, some of their descendants took that with them when they went to Texas. Um, so the, the whole actual story of the first Africans is not at all what has been portrayed. And it's now being written into the textbooks uh, and has been taught for years and years and years. And the only one that remained enslaved was actually enslaved by one of his fellow tribesmen that landed and he sued for his freedom and lost. The English courts uh, made him remain as a slave to one of his fellow Angolans. But you'll be serving papers on Monday for that story. <laughs> That's just fine. I can I can prove everything I say. <laughs> yes, ma'am. My mother was a Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh yeah, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yep, all of our 
Civil War tours in Virginia go to Newmarket, and the one tour in April will go to the Bush Hong House. We will we'll walk the whole battlefield. Yeah, my lead tours there. Okay. Sorry to take so much time. Okay. I'll stop there, and if you have any other questions, feel free to ask them. And if you'd like any of the uh, more detailed information about particular tours, uh, I think there's some still left down there on the table, and also our schedule. And again, if you are interested in receiving uh, our emails and uh, other information about our company, um, leave me your name and uh, email address. Thank you.